You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we've got Ross Manette back in the studio, my favourite local government planner. He's going to give us the real deal on the myriad of changes that the state government has pushed through over the last couple of weeks in the planning space. We're going to be talking about the 80 million bucks McGowan is throwing at developers to get apartments off the ground. Will it work? What difference will it make? We're going to talk about the median density code. That's a huge structural paradigm shift for the way we develop properties in the medium density space. And finally, we're going to talk about the reforms to the SAT JDAP space and what that means for local governments and also for industry builders, developers, mum and dads. Ross, thanks so much for coming in, mate. Thanks, Trent. Thanks for having me. I reckon that was a good summary of of what we're looking at, right? I think so. There's quite a lot to digest there. Why do you reckon it all came out in the same time frame? Was it just a good chance for it to be announced at the Property Council event or has this all been in the works for quite a while? Look, my understanding is that the medium density codes for sure have been developed for the last two to three years at least. The other changes, I didn't know anything about those coming. No, I hadn't. You knew something has to have come because a lot of noise is coming out of industry right now that we need help, but I wasn't aware it was going to be that. No, definitely not, particularly around the permanent pathway for significant developments. I think that's that's definitely a surprise to many, but again, for others, probably not. So let's go from smallest change to biggest change, I reckon. And for me, the least significant one, and I'm being deliberate with that word, is the 80 million bucks that McGowan's throwing at industry to incentivize us to get apartments off the ground. So do you want to give us a bit of detail as to how that's split up and what it means on a micro level? From my understanding, the $80 million is to assist in unlocking supply. So if there's a barrier to that supply in, say, headworks or something infrastructure-wise to then open up new subdivision or new supply of apartments, then that is really the intention of that fund. Whether or not that is enough and in some circumstances looking at how many lots are actually going to come out of it, what is the bigger picture here is that $80 million appropriately allocated? Where is it going to go? Those are the questions I have as well. So for me, as I understand it, $80 million is split up, 40 mil for the city, 40 mil for the regions. It's quite a good political press there. Obviously, we, we need more supply in the regions as much as we do in the city. So it's probably fair. But the key point there is it's, as from my understanding, $10,000 per new unit provided right and let's talk about apartments in that space and and that's to cover off essentially as i guess an offset or a rebate i don't know exactly how it's going to work against as you said headworks and government fees so for those who don't understand what headworks are it's the cost you have to pay the contribution you're paying to water corporation or western power for them to provide the infrastructure required for new density we're creating you don't actually get a lot out of it. It's more just paying money to these organizations. So if, let's say, I was going to develop 10 new apartments in Wembley, then the contribution to me would be $100,000 to help me pay for what would be more than $100,000 in headworks fees across that development. Question is, does that make a difference? I would posit that if there are any developments out there right now that are sitting on the sidelines by a factor of $10,000 per apartment, I'd be very surprised, Ross. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd probably agree. I think 
where there's a major infrastructure upgrade, say for example for a sewer pumping station or a water trunk main, etc. If there is a huge cost related to that and it might be outside the normal contribution, that's probably where it's going to help where we need to unlock in key locations more supply, areas where the developments are actually feasible and viable at the moment and where we can actually get these apartments off the ground because at the moment they're just not they're not happening. And that's the thing. I don't actually think that it's the government costs that are holding developers back right now. Developers are holding back because they can't get a builder to actually sign a contract with them for a price that works. The builder doesn't want to sign the contract simply because they don't know whether they're going to be able to fulfill it from a from a cost perspective in the in the first place and we've seen businesses like pro build firm fall over pinned down because of this and also because of those costs that are realities to build the developers can't justify that with the with the market for off the plan sales and a big reason for that is because they can't sell to foreign buyers anymore because foreign buyers don't want to pay the extra 7% on top of what everyone else has to pay. They'd rather go to the Gold Coast or Melbourne if they're going to be having to pay that 7%. So the $10,000 is nice. We'll take the money, thanks. But it's not going to be the difference or the reason a new apartment development is going to come on or a new land sale. So for me, it's quite tokenistic. I'd much rather the fella have just budgeted that $80 million into killing foreign buyers surcharge to actually provide some marketing back to the Asian market to say, guys, we're open for business. We'd love you to start buying here again. Absolutely. And I think it's it's a good segue, Trent. I think a lot of the considerations for these developers to get going relies on certainty. What is it that they can rely upon in terms of, say, for example, the planning framework, a local council and its politics, but also the decision to start that development, they're going to want to have certainty that they are or they are not going to have to fund development contributions, public open space contributions and community benefits. So the the irony thing about it as well is in one hand is throwing 10 grand per unit per dwelling at the developer to offset government costs. But on the other hand, on the 13th of December in 2022, the Department of Education slapped a new contribution requirement of all developments of five or more new dwellings of up to $4,500 per dwelling anyway. So on the one hand, you're giving us 10 grand, but all that's doing is is offsetting the four and a half grand we've just had in December anyway. It's Peter Robin Paul in a way. And they don't speak to that and it's one great headline, but it really is not going to make a difference. And for me, that was a headline that was lovely to get some applause at the Property Council a couple of weeks ago. But it's quite an empty olive branch in my opinion. There's so much more he could have done with that $80 million to generate apartment development. Let's move on to what is probably a bit more of a chunky change and that's the SAT JDAP amendments. I think these are actually pretty good outcomes. So with the first one, waste of time, don't know why you're bothered. Second one, I'm going to peg this on Safiotti and say she's made some really good changes here and starting to streamline the decision making. What do you think? You've obviously right at the top of uh, Western suburbs local government. I'd like to hear your perspective both personally, which I know is obviously different to the area that you work in and also your assumption of what the uh, local governments in your area would be thinking about this. I think that the local governments in my area, being the western suburbs, would be thinking that there's a level of control being lost through the development application process. Whether or not that is the case, we'll see that as we see applications come through. But what we've seen since 2011 is some fairly 
decent consistency in terms of decision making for complex applications. By the JDAP, in most instances you'll see a JDAP going with an officer recommendation, not always. But what you've got there is you've got the balance of three technical experts versus two local government political representatives. So the perception there is that the balance of power is with the DAP panel, with the state government, not with the local government. And it's a constant contention there that people perceive that their voices are not being heard. I think it probably provides the balance that if it's a good enough project it will be approved and in a state where we are constantly undersupplied whilst we always would like excellence it's rare that you get excellence and if that's the threshold you want to keep it to which is what a lot of local government councils do have their threshold at we're not going to have supply that is the definition of red tape a lot of the time but before we move in further into this uh, second segment of the satin jada streamlining we should run through exactly what's happened so do you want to provide a little bit of detail on that before i round it out Sure. So in delivering the reforms, uh, the West Australian government are seeking to reduce the number of panels to three, one for each Perth inner and outer metropolitan area and a third panel to service the regional areas. What is it currently? We have five. We have metro, inner, north and south, and we have outer, and we have regional, and we have a Perth city JDAP. Okay. So we're streamlining that into just three DAPs, and I assume that's going to provide more consistency because those three DAPs will be have have those three sets of panel members. Correct. I guess what the, you spoke to that before with developers, it gives more certainty as, as to what the threshold is for approval? Yeah, I, I think the difference here is that in comparison with taking an application to council, the decision is weighted more in terms of the technical expertise rather than the politics. So yes, you do have the voice at the table for the community being the elected members, but you do have three professional planning and other expertise at the table to make the decision. And I can say from first-hand experience, these people aren't just approving everything. We see people on the DAP side recommend refusal. We see people recommend deferral. So it's not there yet. We need you to make some changes before you give approval. And we see approval. Certainly, I've seen uh, much more of the balance. If you're going to see a refusal, it's probably more likely it's coming from the councillor. If you're going to see an approval, it's more likely it's coming from the DAP member. But I've certainly seen both sides of the coin switched as well. Absolutely. And I've been part of many JDAP proposals where I've seen a mix of of decision making and even applications where you think that it's going to be approved and the officer's recommended approval, it's been refused by the DAP or deferred. The first part here is that it's the five DAPs are being streamlined into three DAPs. What's next? So they're permanently appointing experienced technical experts to serve as presiding and deputy presiding members on each panel with no change to the current local council representation proposed. So it's still five panel members, but the government represented ones will be permanently employed. So at the moment, they they sub in and sub out. And so you'll find in the Metropolitan in the North JDAP, the presiding member's pretty consistent, but the other members will sub in and out. Based on availability with their other work. Correct. These guys are going to be full-time, you know, as a developer, yeah. as a community member, anything that's getting assessed that's not being assessed by the council will be assessed by these three members and the two nominated councillors. Correct. That gives a bit of certainty on both levels. So these DAP members are now going to be paid full-time. They'll be doing this every day. What else? The other point is that all multiple dwelling developments would be able to be determined by the DAP. I believe at the moment it's only 10 or more. 
Yeah, so if you have 10 dwellings or more, then it can be assessed by the DAP. If not, it has to be assessed by the council. Correct. And there's also something in there about the different uses, right? So they're making the DAP completely opt-in uh, for any development over 2 million. So that also means you can opt out, whereas before, if you had a development over a certain threshold, you had to go to the DAP. So if you're in a local government area where you believe that, I guess that there's alignment with the objective to get a development approved, then it might be easier or quicker to go through that local government. Nothing's stopping you. And this is where I think most people have missed the point here. The council is not being routed here. If a developer feels like the, the council is behind them, the developer has the op- option to just go through the council. They're not obliged to use the DAP. So there's still always going to be two options. When you put your application in, you can choose for it if it's above $2 million. You can choose for it to be a DAP application or you can choose for it to be assessed by your local councillors, depending on, I guess, whether you feel like the politics is for you or against you at the time. Absolutely. I think it also presents an opportunity for developers to form a good working relationship or collaboration with their local council to hear what those local communities think about that type of development and hopefully get some buy-in. I think that there's there's definitely an opportunity there to explore that option for some developers in certain local government areas. What people also need to recognise is that when a developer does opt in to be assessed by the Joint Development Assessment Panel, the local city planners still have to prepare their reports and their recommendations, don't they? And that has a big influence on whether the JDAP will move ahead with an approval or not. That's correct. What's happening at the moment with some of the reforms that happened maybe two or three years ago, there was an ability for the local government as the council to replace the recommendation of the staff and put that first as the council's recommendation. I believe as part of these changes, they're changing that back to be able to have it as the officer recommendation being from the administration. So that does have an impact in the fact that the recommendation is technical and non-political and has to take into consideration all of the matters that need to be considered as part of the planning regulations, for example. We spoke about this earlier and it comes also comes down to giving the local planners the freedom to express themselves and their role without fear of influence from the council. And this goes both ways. If technically they believe it should be refused when the council maybe is pro-development, then they don't have them on their back. They shouldn't in this situation or replacing them, right? And and same vice versa. What I think this does is just provide more confidence for everyone along that pathway through to assessment that if it's not going to be assessed by the council, that the council will not be involved. They are, in most cases, not qualified to be involved in the first place. This is why this is happening. And the city, people who are employed, qualified, trained at our universities to make these recommendations, have all the time they need to approach local neighbours to make their recommendation. And then obviously, it will be a JDAP decision for anything above $2 million. Now, let's talk about that. This, this decision here with regards to changing the threshold from 10 units or $10 million down to $2 million. It's not affecting your Paul Blackburns of the world. This fellow works in the $200 million space, right? Um, This is affecting mum and dad developers, small professional developers who are doing a handful of apartments or a handful of townhouses who currently had no pathway to a fair, non-biased decision-making process to now be able to have that confidence that especially if they are meeting planning frameworks or working within the design principles regardless of the political situation in their local council they can have confidence that if they invest the time and money in their application 
they will have a fair pathway for approval. And a perfect example of this is in the city of Netherlands recently, where a couple of applications that were townhouse developments in the city of Netherlands, what would have been of a value of about two and a half million dollars, I'd say, were refused by the local council because they were slightly outside the realms of the planning framework in the local city, but nothing too crazy. It had to go to SAT and SAT costs a mozza ross, costs a lot of time and money, and they were both approved at SAT, which is obviously, that is the be all and end all. If SAT says it's approved, it should have been approved in the first place. What this does is it gives that developer who was doing four or five townhouses down the road an avenue to a fair non-political assessment. Would you agree? I would. I think that it definitely opens up the avenue for applicants to go down that pathway where they do feel that they're position is, is is somewhat compromised by the political framework or the, the climate, I guess, of what's happening in that local area. And it gives them a fair and reasonable assessment. Any planner will have to uh, assess an application on its own merits, whether or not it's going through council or whether or not it's going through a JDAP. In this instance, that's also a question of delegation. Three or four unit townhouse development should be developed um, and should be approved under delegation in local government. Why is that going to a council meeting? Mm. And that's the issue. You don't have the choice as the developer to be able to have this approved under delegation. In, In some councils, as you know, if any of your application is slightly out of the strict box that most of the planning framework provides, councils can call it up and not allow for it to be delegated even mm. if there's a you know a hundred mil overreach on a setback or something like that you know and these are the things that the jdap reforms are providing a bit more confidence to developers for and what it does is it allows developers architects drafties to express themselves a bit more creatively just because it doesn't fit in the tight metric boxes of the planning framework we have which are there for a reason it doesn't mean that there are alternative development options and proposals that aren't far more progressive or productive or efficient or attractive for our society that most people would say is a great development. I think people need to realise that the application goes through the same assessment process and as part of the planning and development regulations, they have to be advertised, they have to go through a certain process in each instance. And the staff in the local government will assess them the same way as if they're going either pathway or they should be. In some local authorities, there might be a bit of fear and where the local government planner has to have a bit of bravery in recommending approval for an application that they feel may have some political sensitivity. But at the end of the day, through these changes to the DAPs, I don't see that there's any fundamental change in the way that the planning officers in your local government will be assessing the applications. This is one change that I have to applaud and hopefully it provides just a bit more confidence in a market that is so undersupplied where developers have so little confidence in the development process, let alone their development stacking up financially, let alone builders being around to develop. If we can start breaking down some of these barriers at a government level, just one less thing, one less risk factor a developer has to factor in so they can actually deliver the supply we need to deliver in WA so that everyone's got a roof over their head at an affordable price. It just makes sense. And and I guess that helps to segue into the third big change that came up, which is one that, as you said, has been in the cookbooks for two to three years now. We've all been very well aware of it. It's been a draft. It's gone through a lot of uh, consultation and it went dark, I guess, through COVID for a couple of years there. And that's the new median density code. And that I guess you can explain this in far more detail than me, Ross, but this new medium density code, which came out in the last couple of weeks, 
It doesn't affect single houses. It doesn't affect massive apartment developments. It is an amendment to the way we uh, look at development in property zone R30 to R60, the medium density, where you currently would see side-by-side corner lot subdivisions, where you would see triplexes and quads and some small apartments and townhouse developments. If you can recognize those built forms to everyone listening, that's what we're gonna start talking about now. Ross, talk us through what's going on in that space and maybe if you can, a little bit of history as well. Sure, so what it's doing is creating a new volume one R codes, which includes requirements as we would see now for that low density up to that R25 level, then a medium density component, which is the R30 to R60, and then there's a component dealing with land subdivision. So I guess fundamentally what it's trying to do is create better medium density development to move us away from triplex style development or house behind house which is obviously working in in certain areas but in terms of increasing sustainability and and increasing tree canopy and things like that it's not meeting that criteria no and i would agree whilst i'm a big proponent for medium density it's what we do a lot here at strategic and we've been a part of for a long time i would agree that there are other cities around australia and not to mention the world, who do medium density a lot better than we do. And the reason is, isn't they have better architects or better builders or better ideas. It's because we have to sit within a framework of the planning system. And that framework up until now has essentially meant the path of least resistance, both from planning, but also with the market who get used to the product, has been turning your 750 square meter block or your quarter acre block with the old three by one at the front into three or four houses with a driveway to the back. The irony is you don't see a lot of that around the rest of the world. Mm. It's not something that's normal around the rest of the world. It's something that's just become normalized for us. The type of development you see in those spaces, in those urban, suburban areas, is terrace housing. It's small communal apartment housing. It's, It's one mansion that looks like a mansion, but it's actually three families living in family sized single story homes that we would call apartments this is the norm for people in europe and even on the east coast whereas for us we don't really have any of that product and that's i think i understand what this amendment to the r30 to r60 space is trying to push us towards would you agree i definitely would agree i think what the intent there is really is to create more livable and sustainable housing mandating or or requiring certain size of courtyards, bedrooms, bedrooms, and really just trying to get out of the mentality of just building just for profit and actually building decent decent homes for people in that space. The hard thing is that developers, and, and when we say developers, especially in the medium density space, these are generally not professional people. These are mum and dads. These are so many of the people listening to this podcast. So if you're listening and you've ever thought about doing a subdivision or you've done a subdivision and it includes the two of us talking today, we're all developers. There's not all big, massive companies here. We're talking about small mum and dads. Now, none of us are going to do this unless there's a dollar in it for us. Certainly, we want to contribute to Urban Infill. We see there's something that's exciting to us. We like the challenge. We want to be able to make a difference in that space. But none of us do anything in that in investment space without seeing a dollar in it. So that is something you mentioned, Ross, that is hard because it sort of leads us into part of the concern I have for this change in that it is mandating a more expensive, more complex type of development 
that mum and dads, a lot of mum and dads might not be able to afford. And they fill a huge space, a huge gap that private sector and public sector can't fill in this space. And that's where I get a bit concerned. So right now, builders know how to price a triplex in Warwick or Morley, right? Um, Mum and dads sort of understand it. They might have done it before. Their friends done it before. Uh, The market understands what they're buying. And it is the most efficient, quickest way to build most of the time one-story, maybe two-story developments that might be between $700,000 and $1.5 million. The banks know how to fund it as well. They generally do pretty well with funding it based on land value. You can get a lot of this stuff funded at 80%. The second you start going into this new realm where we've got a lot more what looks like built strata development, really, where there's a lot more common walls, a lot less land subdivision happening in that space or the land subdivision that's happening doesn't reflect what the banks are used to seeing and the builders are used to building. I see a, a period there of transition where the developers don't really know how to feasible it up. The builders don't have any designs for it, don't know how to cost it up. The market doesn't know what they want to pay for it because they've never seen it before. And the banks don't know whether they actually want to fund it. And if they do, they'll fund it at lower loan-to-value ratios because they see risk, because they don't understand it. None of that is helpful in the most undersupplied time of our market we've ever had. Trent, I agree. There's <laughs> there's a lot in that. The timing of this is is quite difficult, I guess, in terms of implementation and delivery of housing. I think that there probably could have been more in this space, in the medium density code space, to unlock more potential because it gets rolled out into every local planning scheme across the state. So there's the ability to unlock development potential or extra housing potential supply just through a provision in this particular code. Now, they've added the uh, small dwellings, which are 70 square metres in the R30 to R60 space, Previously, that uh, in the lower density codes, that's a single bedroom dwelling. Within the medium density code space, that could be a two bedroom dwelling at a 70 square meter. You get a two thirds density bonus, so you, you you're basically uh, providing 65% of the minimum land, the minimum average land size. So th- there's the ability there to potentially add an extra dwelling in a say a two or three lot subdivision. Again, you know, it's going to be a product that's unknown to the market, small two-bedroom villa or a a small two-bedroom apartment or something like that that may not fit in within that context of that particular suburb, for example. So similar to what happened in 2010 to 2013-14 with the apartments, the walk-up apartments, it took two to three years for the market to really respond and then places like Belmont, it just went crazy. Yeah, and Nolamara, Balga, Westminster, yep. yeah. So Rivervale. I, I can see that this sort of you know new way of doing things is going to take three to four years to really roll out and for the industry to understand it. That doesn't help us right now in terms of getting supply on the ground. Well, especially when a lot of people are looking to get existing applications through and this document now is one that is deferred until September the 1st before it's gazetted, but has to be given serious consideration in any application that's happening right now. So we're trying to put through a triplex right now from a property we bought a year ago, but now that application is now being assessed under the existing code with serious consideration for the new code. That's not going to happen. It nearly nearly puts a lot of applications on its head as well, especially if you let the local governments make their decision as to how they assess it that way. A lot of stuff's going to get caught up in addition to a lot of stuff not even hitting the ground because people are trying to figure out what it means. 
Exactly, and the local government is going to have to take the next three to six months to you know process new assessment sheets and internally working practices, workshops, all that sort of thing. So yeah. there's there's a bit of an education process probably from the Department of Planning. They'll they'll roll out a roadshow of of how does this work and what do what do the local governments need to do. I'm sure that Kathy Bonus at the Commission will go out and speak to industry and and make sure that people understand what's going on. But the linkage between this being rolled out, the timing of it and the delivery of housing on the ground, it's it's a little bit tricky. Why do you reckon it's come out now? It's been two and a bit years, right? Is it, is it because it's been two and a bit years and it just needed to happen? Is there any other reason why this has come out now? I think initially there was some significant industry pushback on it. So some of the submissions from, it could have been HIA, it could have been Property Council or whoever, had issues with the potential delivery of this product. How drastic the change is. And exactly. So it needed refinement and that's what's happened. But there's also provisions in here which um, are transitional until 2025. So some of these provisions, particularly around like trees and, and courtyards, etc., there's a period of time in which you know designs can be developed and the industry can start to, over time, respond to it. Has much changed between what was put forward two years ago and what we've got now? From the draft that I saw in 2021, there's some modest refinements. I think the transitional arrangements are the big ones, so you're giving industry the time to respond to it. But fundamentally, I think the principles are the same. Yeah, it's- I don't think I've seen them give much. It's not like they've gone, oh, you're right, guys, It's a bit. this is a, a bit of a jump. We'll provide the framework to still allow for this sort of build. None of that's happened. They're still making the big jump. I think they're just giving people in some circumstances like land development, which is surprise, surprise, more time to make that change. And and I think that's another point to mention, Trent, is that this code does affect the outer suburban subdivisions. Uh, We've had this discussion before that it's not going to affect much of that middle ring because they don't have that density. But those new subdivisions usually have a base code now of R30. Mm-hmm. So all of your, you know, your Quinana, you know, Alcamos, all that sort of uh, stuff. Yeah, is, your Bold Ivers, your Byfords, yeah. The industry, the building industry is going to have to adapt to that and come up with new product, but they probably are going to have to subdivide differently as well. Yeah, that's right. Our streets are going to look different. The way that our blocks are developed the dimensions of them are going to start looking different because no longer will that 12 meter wide block by 30 probably suit a lot of the builds that need to happen based on the setbacks. The setbacks are a huge thing now. And, that, yeah. and, and that's the thing that the code doesn't say you must build terrace housing, you must, must build cottage housing, you must build community living. It's the setbacks that mandate that yes, the stuff we're building now is just not going to get approved anymore. And some of the local governments, like Swan, for example, use the RMD code, which is that sort of hybrid model for for doing these new subdivisions like in Brabham and Dayton, places like that, which have produced outcomes which I would say are not favourable. There's a lot of like wall-to-wall housing, no opportunity for trees or driveways. It's just, it doesn't look great. It's creating what I would consider to be a future slum. Mm. So that going out the door and this being replacing it, I think is a really positive move. We're going to see better outcomes on the ground in our outer suburbs as well i think we both agree ross this is a positive move for the future it's an inevitability we have to stop doing triplexes with no trees we have to stop doing wall-to-wall townhouses with no real consideration for canopy for outdoor living with tiny rooms those sort of things i agree with that it's just the timing couldn't have been worse but i guess the, the devil's advocate would say well whenever is a good time to make such a shift 
it's just it couldn't have been worse than that at the moment we need every single incentive in industry right now you see it in the paper every day the builders are dying out there they've got no new work coming in the market is still struggling to justify paying what they're going to have to pay for new builds at the prices they are today and the irony of it is demand is knocking through the wall man we got, we had over 1100 transactions last week four years ago it was mm. 550 so it's not like we don't have demand in perth demand is knocking the walls over it's just people don't trust the building industry right now and with a big change like this it's going to make it even harder I think part of the problem here is that in this medium density code that we're going back to quite a regimented uh, deemed to comply pathway, whereas at the moment for R40 to R80, you're going through this more performance-based plot ratio for apartments. It's bringing it back to volume one, a lot of it. It is, and, and it's actually sitting in volume one, yeah. which, which is interesting. But my concern is that we're caught up in the metrics of it in terms of the mathematical equations. We're not looking at the built form in terms of the number of dwellings provided. So, for example, you could have one building, which is 200 square metres in its size, which could be approved as a group dwelling or as a, as a single house on, say, three or 400 square metre lots. There could be three separate dwellings inside of that. And if it has the right amount of parking and it still has all the private courtyard spaces and the right size rooms, what's the problem in that? Yeah. Who, so, is it, who is it offending or hurting? It's not offending or hurting anyone. And I think I said last last time I yeah. spoke to you, yeah, there's a few more letterboxes, whatever. But what we're not seeing is uh, state planning policy responding to a dire need for housing. And that's just one aspect, I guess. It's, I guess, my platform that there could be some clauses within these R codes that unlock potential across the whole state that they have not done. It's it's much of a the same same in terms of the the metrics prescriptive of, metrics prescriptive yeah around, this is how we you must build and you must fit within these boxes hopefully jdaps that developments above two million dollars can give a bit more streamlining to it but for all those people looking to build one or two houses in an r30 environment we're going to start getting pushed into certain boxes and and again uh, you know two million dollars does open up a lot of those uh, more valuable developments but a triple x in in your Warwick's, your Morley's is not getting a $2 million yet. So it's still going to sit in the local council who are still going to have to figure out whether they want it that way or not mm. uh, and are going to make it as hard for you as they want to if it doesn't suit what their interpretation of this new medium density code will be. That's going to be tough. Red tape, red tape, red tape. <laughs> They're trying. They're it, replacing it, red tape yeah. with a different shade of red. That's right. I mean, and that's the challenge. It's, you know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to uh, decrease red tape, but each time a new planning policy or state planning policy comes out, it does create more bureaucracy. It creates more work. It's, it slows down the system. You know, even though a small local government like uh, Town of Mosman Park doesn't have a huge volume of applications, the complexity and the number of processes that we have to go through to get a, a DA from start to finish from 10 years ago is probably, you know, four times the amount of work. You're not trying to make it harder. It's harder for you is what you're saying. It, it is, and I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's it, what, it, what it is, it's more complicated. We have to consider many more things and evaluate many more things and, and make sure that a proposal is assessed properly. And, and to do that, we have to, we have to go through a myriad of, of different policies. The R codes are more complicated, mm. but at the end of the day, it, it does take more time and more staff. <laughs> We've got local governments who can't afford more staff or yeah. can't get them. Well, I guess you're uh, still looking for a couple, Ross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think many of us are. Yeah, exactly. So shout out to 
town of Mosman Park. If anyone wants to go work there under uh, Ross after listening to this, give him a call. <laughs> <laughs> There's your plug. <laughs> uh, mate, thanks so much for coming in. It's going to be an interesting couple of years to see what happens in the R3 to R60 space in Perth. What does come off the ground? Who's going to be the ballsy one to move first? You normally say first movers are price makers, not price takers. So those people who do have the balls in good areas should still be able to do well. But it's everyone else who is sitting back trying to figure it out. It doesn't help the rest of the market who are a little bit more risk averse in trying to provide that supplier that the market sorely needs. Thanks for nothing on the $80 million, McGowan. Good job, Safiotti, on the streamlining of the Jade Up. And geez, the timing could have been a little bit better on the median density code. That's my summary. Ross, thanks for coming in, mate. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!